What a joy to gather again with God's people. <clears throat> we always take these moments for granted to some degree, I think, uh, even when we prepare our hearts as we come uh, to be with God's people, but to hear the Lord's praises, to pray to Him corporately uh, as a local church, and to sit under His Word and read Scripture together. What a blessing, what a gift, what a mercy from our God. So, if you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. That's where we find ourselves. We're going through the book of Exodus as a church. If you're visiting with us today, uh, it is our custom to go through books of the Bible or large chunks. And we are now in the book of Exodus chapter 12. You can turn to verses 42 to 13, 16. The title for the sermon this morning is Exodus Ordinances Part 1. So this is the beginning of uh, what we will likely finish next week as we come to look at these Exodus Ordinances. And I'll say a little more in a moment uh, as to what I mean by that. Last week we talked about the Exodus itself. And we saw three things about it. So the book of Exodus has a lot of material in it. Uh, but at the center of this book is this thing called the Exodus. God's people exiting Egypt. This is the great story of biblical history. Uh, probably the most famous or one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Where God takes his people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Israelites. And he brings them out of Egyptian Bondage. He brings them out of slavery. And so last week we actually came to the heart of the book, the Exodus from Egypt. And we saw three things about it. And I just want to take a moment now to quickly review those. So we saw first that it was a wealthy expulsion. The Israelites were pushed out of Egypt. It wasn't one of those things where uh, they just were allowed to leave. Sure, go if you would like. But Pharaoh, as the Lord had predicted, drove them out of Egypt. And the people were urging them to leave, saying, if they don't leave, we will all surely die. So they are filled with fear. Fear because of the Lord's power, because of the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, because of his great and mighty arm, his mighty hand, he had executed judgment on the Egyptians, on the Egyptian gods, on Pharaoh. And they had witnessed this. And of course, the climax of it was the 10th plague, the killing of the firstborn. And so the Israelites are pushed out of Egypt, but not just driven out, not just allowed to go and not just urged to go, but they leave a wealthy people. So they leave with silver and gold jewelry and they leave with Egyptian clothing, likely the finest that the Egyptians had. And they are leaving Egypt, yes, as a slave people, but now as a liberated, prosperous people. The neighbors of the Israelites give freely the gold and the silver and the clothing to them so that they are able to leave with all of this wealth. And we'll find out later that this will be used to build the tabernacle. It will be used for the worship of God. But as we talked about last week, we know that some of it will be used to build the golden calf. And so we recognize that God's gifts, as we talked about last week, can be used for his praises or they can be used for idolatry. And I just want to hit that again this week. Are there ways in which God's goodness to us 
God's loving kindness to us, his gifts, things that he has given us, people whom he has given us, experiences that he has given us, where these things are being used idolatrously rather than for God's praise. Let your conscience lead you as you consider the effect of that on your own life. So it was a wealthy expulsion. Secondly, it was a mass exodus. This is all of Israel as a people. This is the entirety of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob over four centuries later, as the people of God have grown and grown and grown, leaving as one massive people. They entered into Egypt as a family, 70 plus with Uh, the wives and so forth, and now they are leaving as a mighty nation. A large number of people, numbering over two million, and we talked last week about why uh, I think it is most accurate and most faithful to the scriptures to understand this to be. 600,000 men or fighting men or foot soldiers uh, and women and children. So we're looking at a number that would have been between, scholars estimate, somewhere between Two to two and a half million people. A massive movement of people out of Egypt. And we're also told there with much cattle. So not only are we looking at over two million people, but we have all of these animals that they have acquired over centuries as God has not only multiplied them, but also prospered them and protected their animals from the plagues. We also know that this massive amount of people includes a mixed multitude. So foreigners, some Egyptians, uh, some from other countries who are living in Egypt, some other Semitic peoples living there, other Asiatic peoples, leaving with Israel, deciding to leave with this slave people rather than to stay in Egypt. And as I said last week, I imagine that among these would have probably been uh, some of Pharaoh's servants. I like to think maybe some of those magicians, some of those sorcerers who had come to the end of their power. They had come to the end of their trickery, their resources, and they had come to see the power of the finger of the God of the Hebrews. So a mass exodus. And then finally, we saw last week that it was a fulfilled event. The exodus is not something that just happens. It's not a plan B. It's not something that was uh, unexpected or surprising. It is something that God's people had known all along. Just as God had promised Abraham, so it happened. And so we read in Genesis 15, verses 13 to 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, this is before he had even one descendant. The Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great Possessions. So there the Lord tells Abraham that his descendants are going to be in a foreign land. He tells Abraham how long, roughly 400 being a round figure, whereas the 430 years being a more precise figure that we saw last week. For over four centuries, they're going to be there. 
And then the Lord tells Abraham that they're going to come out. He's going to bring them out, but not just bring them out. He's going to bring them out with great possessions. This was the promise of the Lord. And so Abraham, the same heart in Abraham that had looked up into the stars and believed that God would give him descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the dust of this, as many as the dust of the earth, so too would God fulfill this promise. So where does Moses go from here? After he has given us the Exodus, where does he go from here in his account? of the Israelites leaving Egypt. Well, you would expect him to move directly into their itinerary. So you would expect we would have our map back up today, but we don't. Uh, Last week, we got that first little bit of the itinerary. As they moved from Ramses to Sukkoth, uh, that's all we got so far. You would expect that that would continue. We would see where they go next, and then next, and then next, all the way to the Red Sea. Well, that is not what we find here. Instead, he first describes a series of commands. We have a series of requirements or ordinances, and these ordinances serve as memorials. They are focused on remembering the Exodus. The Exodus is so massive, it is so incredible, it is so amazing that it must be remembered. And so before any more is said about where the Israelites went, there there needs to be an emphasis here on not forgetting this event, on remembering this event, on memorializing this greatest of events. They come in a set of three, three ordinances to commemorate the Exodus. These are memorial practices in Israel That will keep their focus on what God did for them in bringing them out of Egypt. And I think just as we stop here for a moment, it draws our attention to our propensity to forget. You know, think about that as we're going through the Christian life. We have such a propensity to forget. We forget the gospel. We forget all the mighty deeds. I think of Psalm 145, all the things mentioned there, the the wondrous works, the mighty deeds of God. We forget all of these great deeds. We forget the gospel. We forget the center of the gospel and the center of the Bible, which is what Adam read to us earlier, Christ and him crucified. We simply forget. We forget what we read this morning in God's word. We forget uh, the wonderful way in which God took his word and pricked our hearts. The ways that he comforted us and encouraged us in the faith. The ways that he spurred us on and challenged us in our sin. The ways that he roots out sin in our lives. The ways that he has sanctified us and grown us. The ways he's repaired our relationships And comforted us in the worst of times. We. We forget. That is what we do. How many of us can bear witness to a time when the Lord has done something incredible in our lives providentially. Uh, He's showed up in a big way. He's rescued us out of something. He's helped us in a deep time of need. And there's a, a season, a period 
where we're just praising God and we're so grateful and we're focused on all the things the Lord has done for us and then it just really doesn't take long at all. Actually, by the end of the day, we're grumbling again, we're ungrateful again, we're wishing this were different and that were different again. We forget. We are a forgetful people. And God's people have always been a forgetful people because we are in Adam. Or we are of Adam. We are from Adam. It is part of our sinfulness to forget the Lord. Part of our sinfulness to forget God's goodness and God's works. To grumble and complain and focus on what we do not have rather than to give God glory through Jesus Christ for all that we do have. This is our sin. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25, I think is very practical for us as we think about how it is that we keep remembering. How do we as God's people ensure that we are a remembering people rather than a forgetful people? Hebrews chapter 10 We read, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Then here's the focus I want you to see. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How do we become more and more of a remembering people? How are we reminded? We are reminded through encouragement. And we are encouraged when we gather like this in a very special way, in in a way that, that doesn't exist in other situations, in other circumstances. When we gather together, when we function as the assembly of God, as the church, the gathering of God's people, it is here in a very special way that we find encouragement. Encouragement in prayer, encouragement through the scriptures, encouragement through the Lord's Supper, through sharpening one another and fellowshipping together in the Lord. It is here that we find the encouragement that we need that reminds us of who we are and what we have. So I just want you to see, the reason for these three ordinances is to keep God's people's faces on God, to keep them from being a forgetful people, to nail their eyes, as it were, to God's faithfulness and God's power. So here they are, three Exodus ordinances running from chapter 12, verse 42, all the way to chapter 13, verse 16. I'll give them to you up here. The first one is in bold because that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, But we have three of them listed here before we Keep, before we get to uh, God leading his people out, before we get to the, the rest of the itinerary and the people coming to the Red Sea or the Yam Suf, before we get all of that, we get these three ordinances. The Passover meal, the unleavened bread festival, and the firstborn consecration. We're going to spend our time, as I said, looking at this first one today. So if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word. We're going to read. We're going to Read around this first one, the Passover meal, verses 42 to 51, but we're going to back up a little bit and start in verse 40. So our passage for today is Exodus 12, 42 to 51, but we're going to read starting in verse 40. 
This is the word of God. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord, by Yahweh, to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to Yahweh by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Verse 43 And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. And you shall not break any of its bones. We heard that read earlier. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to Yahweh, let all his males be circumcised. Then Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. You can go ahead and be seated. You see the next bit there, uh, chapter 13, up to verse 16. We get the consecration of the firstborn and the feast of unleavened bread. So there's the Passover meal and then there are these other two observances which are ordinances based on the Exodus. They're Exodus ordinances and they are meant to be memorials for the people to keep their faces on God's mighty and faithful work. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing over our time together. Father, we thank you for another gathering We thank you for how you use this time together to remind us of who you are and what you have done and what you have called us to be and to do. Lord, we're grateful that we have these verses here before us, Lord. Every passage, every verse, every phrase, every word is from you. It is breathed out by the Spirit, by you, the living God. As you carried along those men who wrote these words, the very word of God. And Lord, we're grateful that we have the privilege of hearing from you. We don't have to imagine how you are or who you are. We don't have to come up with our own conception of the Lord, of God. But you reveal yourself here to us, Father. Especially, you reveal yourself to us here specifically in a way that we don't see you through the stars and the sun and the moon and the creatures of the earth. A special revelation here before us, God, where we see specifically who you are and what you require of us, what you have done for us and what you will do for us through our Savior. Father, we pray that your spirit would guide this service as he already has. And we pray that uh, he would guide this preaching of your word. Lord, would we all sit under your word with reverence, with awe? Would we submit to your authority and not pretend to be our own authority? 
Would we be dependent on you and not independent rationalists looking at the world with our own reason, trying to piece it all together autonomously, separate from you? Lord, would that not be? Would we depend on you? Would we drink deeply from your word? And would we grow this morning because of the time that we have together? Would we be like that Psalm 1 tree, so beautiful, so green, so fruitful and nourished? Lord, would we be like that tree because of our time here today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our focus this morning is on this first Exodus ordinance, the Passover meal. And here in these verses, we see three things about it. So I'm going to give you a second to write these down. They're very, very simple, very brief. I don't have these listed up here because I want you to keep the whole in view. But here they are. As we look at the Passover meal today, we're going to look at these three things. The purpose, the participants, and the practice. So for part one, the purpose the participants in the practice regarding the Passover meal. So let's look first at the purpose. Look at verse 42. This is where we ended last week. We included it at the end of last week, but I think it also kicks off this week. It's really a transition verse. So here it is, verse 42. It was a night of watching, speaking of the Passover night. It was a night of watching by the Lord. To bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. What was the Exodus? What was the tenth plague when God moved through Egypt and struck the firstborn? What was the Passover when God passed over his people's sin as he looked upon the blood of the lamb and he passed by as he saw the blood on the doorways of their houses? Well, as this verse says, it was a night of watching. That's what it was. The 10th plague, the exodus, the Passover, in a sense, are all rolled into one event. It's like a a multifaceted diamond. Uh, These three separate ways of looking at this one night, the 10th plague, the Passover, and the Exodus. What is it? A night of watching by Yahweh to bring them out of the land of Egypt. God is depicted here As a shepherd who watches over his sheep. He is attentive. He is watching them. He knows them. He's caring. He cares for them. Takes care of them. And he is protective. All the things we associate with a shepherd who keeps sheep. Who keeps watch over sheep. He exercises his power to deliver his people. Now, we all love this imagery of God as shepherd. It, it, is, it has made an indelible mark on even our culture. I can't tell you how many uh, funerals I've been to where I, I, I knew that the family, they weren't believers. The person who died was not a believer. And, and yet, as they're sort of searching for what to, to do and what to read, Psalm 23. We've got to read Psalm 23. 
It's just made an indelible mark on our culture. We love this imagery of God as shepherd. How much more those, the people of God who actually know God as shepherd. Listen to the words of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. How many of us have been restored in our souls by God? He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We find these words about God as shepherd again in John chapter 10. Just to read a few verses there, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We get a little more specificity there. Uh, Psalm 23, we don't have the image of the shepherd, the Lord, laying down his life for the sheep. But then in John 10, we get this, that the Lord doesn't just provide for his sheep. He doesn't just protect his sheep. He actually dies for his sheep. In the person of his son. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then verses 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. Does Christ know you? Like that? Does Christ know you as his own? Does Christ look at your life and say, mine, my sheep? Praise God. That those who are in Christ are known by Jesus in this way. And he says, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. So we love this imagery. We love this imagery of God as shepherd, the Lord as shepherd. And we know these passages. We've read them. Some of us have memorized them. You've heard them quoted many times. But the question for us, as we come to a passage like this, as we come to verse 42, and we see this night of watching by the Lord, the question is, do we live this reality? You know, the person that Jesus describes at the end of Matthew chapter 6, who is worrying, so worried, is the kind of person who is not living this reality. To live in light of the great truth that God is my shepherd is to cast aside all worry. It is to cast aside all All fear, because we know that even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, guess what? He's there. Not a single thing can happen to us where his watchful eyes are not present. Where the one who laid down his life for the sheep is not watching over us. Do you live in this Reality, You know, I think worry is probably the greatest indicator of the extent to which we're not living in this 
reality. We call worry a lot of things. And oftentimes we think of ourselves as victims rather than perpetrators of worry. The way Jesus describes it in Matthew chapter 6 is we are actually perpetrators of worry, not victims. We worry when we do not trust in our watching God, in the Lord who is my shepherd, in the Lord who lays down his life for the sheep. The Exodus night of watching is a picture of what God always does for those who are in Christ. We're getting a little picture as we think about the Lord there on that night, keeping vigil, watching over his people. We're getting a little picture of what God has done in delivering us, what God is doing in delivering us, and what he will do in delivering us. Think of our lives in that way. Every moment of our lives is part of this night of watching as the Lord our God is delivering us and ultimately will bring us to himself. And what we see here is that there is a direct connection between God's night of watching and the Israelites' practice of Passover. So look at the end of verse 42. So... This same night is a night of watching, kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. What's being said here is that just as God kept vigil to deliver his people, so must his people keep vigil on this night to remember him, to worship him, to consider his vigil, to consider his Watching. They are to stay up late and eat this meal as a reminder of God's watching on that first Passover night. So, this is the purpose of the Passover meal to glorify God by remembering His faithful, powerful, gracious watching. It's a response. And I think there is a one big implication for us here. Notice in this verse that the keeping to the Lord is a response to what has been done by the Lord. Notice the language there. The first part of the verse looks at what has been done by the Lord. And then the response is a to the Lord. All of our religious practices, listen to this, Christians. Busy, busy Christians. All of our religious practices are a direct response to grace. They must be in truth. They are objectively that way. But are they subjectively that way? In our own experiences, uh, are the things that we do, all the things that we do, all the little things we do to serve, all the big, big things we do to serve, all of the religious practices of our lives, private worship and family worship and corporate worship and all the ways we contribute to those things, all the ways we serve the poor or send out the gospel. Is it a direct response to grace? Always ask yourself the why question. Why are you here this morning? Just routine? It's what I do. It's habit. There is a why 
question to be asked behind every religious practice of God's people. And as we see here with something as central to the Israelites as the Passover, there is a direct why, and it is the Lord's work. What the Lord did, and now what we do in response. That's what Sunday gatherings, the Lord's Day gatherings are about. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. And everything else we do, it's a response to grace. A response explicitly, mindfully, intentionally to God's grace. So we see the purpose of the Passover meal. Now we come to the participants. And this really is the heart of the passage. If you were reading this passage quickly and you just ask yourself, uh, what's this thing about? What are these verses most about? I think this is the heart of it here. The participants of the Passover. So look with me in verses 43 to 45. We're going to skip over verse 46, come back to that at the end. So 43 to 45 and then 47 to 49. So here we go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. And then verse 47, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. There's one God. There's one worship. So there is one law. Here we read God's directives to the people of Israel through Moses and Aaron. And the big question is who? Who? Who can eat the Passover meal? Who gets to participate in this religious practice of the Israelites, of the Jewish people? Eventually, Israel will come to inhabit the land of Canaan, as God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember when we were going through Genesis, uh, so many of the promises and so much emphasis on the land, on the land, on the land, that God would multiply Abraham's offspring, and he would turn him into a great nation. He would bring them back to this land. They will move from a long history of being a sojourning people to being a settled people, settled by the Lord in their land. Why is it their land? Because God gave it to them. God promised Abraham that this would be his people's Land, And this is why Jacob wanted to be buried in Canaan. At the end, we, we read when Jacob dies, he wants to be buried in the cave of Machpelah there in Canaan with Abraham and Isaac. And this is why Joseph told his brothers before he died that they must one day bring his bones out of Egypt into Canaan. That, that story, I remember going through the end of Genesis chapter 50. Uh, where Joseph tells them that. He, he's so conscientious about that. He tells his fellow, well, his brothers. He tells his brothers, look, I want you to take my bones when God brings you out. Make sure you bring my bones out of here and bring me back to Canaan. Bring me back to, bring my bones back to the promised land. This was central to the promises of God's people. And when they settle in the land, 
it will be important for them to know who should celebrate the Passover. They are a theocracy. The Israelite nation is a theocracy. It is governed by the Lord and his word. It is governed by the likes of Joshua and the likes of David and Solomon who are to meditate constantly on the word of the Lord and to lead the people accordingly. And it will be important for them to know who should celebrate this Passover in the midst of this land, in the midst of this people. But as we saw last week, this is already a relevant question. This is not a question just for when they enter the land. And of course, as with any land, there will be foreigners and strangers and other sorts of people in the land. But this is relevant right now, just as we read in verse 38. A mixed multitude also went up with them. So here we have this massive group of Israelites, and we've got all of these foreign people, all of these non-Israelites, these non-descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are with God's people. How are the Israelites to celebrate this religious ordinance as a whole nation with all of these non-Israelite people among them? Do they include them or do they exclude them? Who's in and who's out? And the whole thing revolves around one word. It's repeated throughout. This word, circumcision. Circumcision. Going back to Genesis chapter 17, to be circumcised is to become part of the covenant community. We know that the Lord in Genesis 17 came to Abraham uh, and he said to him, which his name was changed from Abram to Abraham, the father of many nations. And he comes to Abram and he says to him, that he is to be circumcised, and everyone in his household is likewise to be circumcised. It is to become part of the covenant community. It is to take hold of God's promises. It is to become part of this entire complex of promise and fulfillment that defines God's people. It is to trust in his faithfulness and to obey him in faith. There's a lot packed into this biblical idea of circumcision. I remember when I was a kid sitting in church. I grew up in church since I was three. And I used to always think it was so strange how often in church people were talking about circumcision. It just seems so distant and just, just so foreign uh, to, to real life and the, and the Christian life. But we're, we're going to talk about in a moment uh, how, we under, how we are to understand circumcision, but all of that was packed into circumcision in the Old Testament from Abraham forward. All of this promise, fulfillment, all of this divine faithfulness, all of this trust in God and obedience to God, it was all housed, if you will, in this rite of circumcision. So central to the people of God. The sign of the covenant. If foreigners want to celebrate, then they must celebrate it in truth, in covenant, from the heart, as those who have joined the community of faith. And the sign of that covenant, that they are part of that community of faith, that they are worshipers of Yahweh, that they are bringing their children along in worship of Yahweh, is this biblical practice of circumcision. So verses 48 to 49, if a stranger 
shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. So some dwelling among the Israelites, they want to worship Yahweh. They're not just there for economic reasons. They're not just there because uh, there, there might be a place for them or, or, or they're there because they know someone there. They want to worship Yahweh. They want to keep the Passover. And so the Lord says, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. The foreigner or hired worker in verse 45 is understood to be a non-circumcised temporary resident. This is someone who is just there for a short time, understood by implication not to be part of the people, not to be part of the covenant community, not to be part of the worshiping community growing out of the faith of Abraham. These sorts of people are not to celebrate the Passover. But these directives from the Lord are not just concerned with who cannot keep the Passover. Notice that. They also concern who must keep the Passover. This is not just about, you make sure those guys don't. But look who must, verse 47. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. This is a non-negotiable requirement for God's people. This is part of their idea. Identity. If they are circumcised Israelites, it is their responsibility to keep the Passover. I just want to take a moment before we go on to the practice as we look at verse 46. I want to just think about some implications for us because everything I just said under this, well, it's not up there, but under this second point of the participants, it makes just seem a little bit kind of foreign and obscure and strange. You know, it's way back there, kind of unrelated to us. How are we to think about this as as we draw out implications from this passage for our own lives? Well, I think one big thing is that here we have a little pointer to Gentile inclusion. You know, the, the Bible is one big story. And we just can't follow the story if we don't think about these sorts of things. And in this big story, we recognize that it is a story of Israel. It is a story of God's people, Israel, in the Old Testament... As God has come to them and he has given them his worship and his promises. He's given them the the covenant. He's given them his law. And as we gather here this morning, it it is really easy for us to kind of have an entitlement mindset. Just to kind of feel entitled all along. To this wondrous thing that we're a part of. This this biblical story. The fact that, that we've actually, our little lives have been roped in, pulled into this great narrative of scripture. This great narrative of history. What we're reading here with these foreigners among God's people is a little pointer to what's happening here this morning. And that is the inclusion of the Gentiles. We have been grafted into Israel. We've been grafted into God's people, just as we saw in Romans 9 through 11. We are those who hope in Israel's Messiah. Let me say that again. We trust in Israel's Christ. He is the Jewish Messiah. He is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, 
and Jacob. And we have been grafted into this people. All the love and humility and expectation that we got from Romans 9 through 11 should pour out of that great truth. The love that we have for the Jewish people. The humility that we have as Gentile believers, which Paul calls his readers to all throughout Romans 11. And the expectation of what God will do at the end of time regarding his people Israel. And the great joy that it will be when all of the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles grafted in will worship together. With this all Israel that has been saved. What a glorious expectation we have. As all will praise God for his mercy. Unbelieving Jews. Once hardened. Now made to believe by God's grace in their Christ. And Gentiles who were far away from God, without hope in the world, strangers from God's promises, brought near by the blood of Christ, all of us, Jew and Gentile alike, praising God forever for his mercy. That's God's great eschatological plan. And in a passage like this, we have just a little taste, a little pointer, a little hint of what's to come. Another implication for us to consider is that worship is done out of a covenant relationship. You know, I think oftentimes where there's no theology, think about this, there's just no doctrine, there's no understanding of the Bible, no understanding of of what a covenant is and, and how these things have fit together throughout the story of the Bible. Our worship just comes out of thin air. It just comes out of our own feelings. That's why there's so much craziness in evangelical Christianity, here and worldwide, so much craziness, so many unbiblical practices, so many things that just get cooked up in man's imagination. Or worship just springing out of our own sinful fallen hearts. Our worship is a rooted worship. Our Christian lives, our gathering together, our church life is rooted in the new covenant. We are a covenant People and all the worship that rises out of our hearts and through our members is rooted in this great covenant. We worship as those who have been included in the new covenant through Christ's blood. This is how we ought to think when we come to church, when we read our Bibles, when we gather with God's people. Finally, as an implication, circumcision was always a pointer to the circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. It was always meant to do that. Romans chapter 2, verse 29. There, Paul says, circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Paul's dealing in Romans chapter 2 with arrogant, prideful Jewish people who are hoping in their circumcision. They know the, the gravity of circumcision because of what we're reading here today. They know the importance of it from Genesis 17. And so they are standing there before Paul, as it were, hoping in their circumcision. And Paul smashes that and he says, that's not going to get you to heaven. That's not going to make you right with God. You need a circumcised heart. The circumcision of the flesh was a pointer 
to the circumcision not made with human hands. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. So let me kind of build this for you a little bit as we think about the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Who is to participate in the new covenant meal, the Lord's Supper? Who is to participate? Well, it is those who have been circumcised. What? Hold on a second. We're not Jewish. What are you talking about? It is those who have been circumcised in the heart. Who is to partake of the Passover fulfilled, the Lord's Supper? It is those who have been circumcised in the heart by the Spirit. So no uncircumcised person should eat of the Lord's Supper. The fulfillment of the Passover. So how, let me ask this question as we think about baptism. How do we come to recognize that circumcision of the heart has happened? If we must have a circumcised heart in order to partake of the Passover fulfilled, if circumcision fulfilled is required for us to take part in the Passover fulfilled, how is it that we come to be recognized as those who indeed have this new heart and can partake of the Lord's Supper? The answer is believer's baptism. Believer's baptism is the sign and symbol of this new heart reality that the person has died with Christ. They've been buried with Christ. They've been raised with Christ to newness of life. Who does that? The Spirit poured into their hearts. Baptism affirms that. It affirms that reality. So what's the order? Circumcision of the heart. Number one, baptism into the new covenant community. Number two, and participation in the new covenant meal. Number three, that's the biblical way that we understand the relationship between baptism and the Lord's Supper. We are to be baptized first and then we partake as affirmed, New covenant believers, those who have declared the uncircumcision of the heart before the people of God and who have been affirmed and recognized as those who do, in fact, have a new heart. It's beautiful how we see the transfer of these things, the fulfillment of these things. We tend to think those things aren't fulfilled. They are fulfilled in all these beautiful ways, just as we saw with the the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we think about how that's fulfilled in the holiness of a Christian. Finally, this morning, as we close, we see the practice. So we've seen the purpose, we've seen the participants, and now we see the practice of the Passover meal. Look at verse 46 as we finish up. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. As many commentators have pointed out, the emphasis here is on unity. The one unified lamb being provided for a unified household. Keep the lamb together. 
and don't break it apart. None of its bones shall be broken. Now, it's interesting. You you read this language and you think, well, what would that have meant to the Israelite? Why that particular directive? Why that particular instruction? And I think the answer is clear that really it's not rooted there. It's rooted in the future. They're told to do it, and so they do it. They are conditioned to obey Yahweh. Hold on a second, Lord. I'm not so sure about that. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Can you explain that further? No. You will see it fulfilled one day. You will look on him whom you have pierced. You will see the Christ, the one whose bones were not broken. The prophet who will come, Deuteronomy 18. The one who will arise in Israel and bring salvation to the Gentiles. John 19, verse 36. John has all this in mind. He, he has this passage. Isn't it beautiful when you think about uh, New Testament writers and, they're, and they're, they have in mind the passages from the Old Testament that we're going through. And John has this passage in mind. He has these truths in mind as he says, look, I'm telling you, as Adam read earlier, I'm telling you, I saw it. I witnessed it with my own eyes. They did not break his bones. Uh, The thief on the left, they broke his legs. Thief on the right, they broke his legs. Christ had already died. He had given his spirit, sovereign Lord that he is. He had given his spirit to the Father. And he had died. He was already dead. No need to break his bones. The lamb whose bones were not broken. What confidence we have in the glory of the gospel as we look at the Old Testament and we see all of these prophecies, all of these pointers, all of these types moving like a train to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning, you're not a believer. Have you, have you ever considered that? You know, scholars, some scholars say, well, you know, of course, the, the apostles just sort of made this stuff up. And they, Really? Really? No one was there to call them on that. They were all willing to die for their faith in Christ that he was, in fact, risen. And these fishermen from Galilee, not Pharisees, have all of these intricate ways that they make the Old Testament perfectly point to Christ. Ludicrous. Christ is Lord. Jesus rose from the dead. And whether or not you believe in him, he is truly who he says he is. And each of us will one day stand before him and give an account for our lives. If you reject him, you reject him to your own destruction. He is the one whose bones were not broken. He is the lamb slain. He is the one who saves us from sin, death, and hell. And he's the only one whom God will see and pass over. If you do not have the blood of Christ on your life, God will not pass over your sins. He will judge you for your sins eternally. I want to give you a quote here that I really like from one commentator named Douglas Stewart. You've heard me quote him before. He says this, the Old Testament covenant community. He's reflecting on uh, this verse and, and what's going on here with the bones. 
and, and the unified lamb. The Old Testament covenant community learns to believe through this rite in a concept of a single, selected, sacrificial, unified lamb of God that would die for them as a symbol of their not having to die and through which they could rejoice for the deliverance God had granted them. They're being prepared for the Christ. The idea that a single savior would die for the whole people of God. One lamb for all the people. One lamb whose bones were not broken. One savior in one place on Golgotha dying for sinners. Trust in Christ. Don't wait. If you're a kid, if you're a child here and you're, you're six, seven, eight, nine, ten, don't wait. It is not our practice here to baptize young children. And we explain that in the new members class and we'd be happy to talk with you about that. But that doesn't mean that young children don't come to faith in Christ. It doesn't mean that young children don't believe unto salvation in Christ Jesus. It is just in pastoral wisdom, given the nature of childhood and the nature of conversion, that we wait to baptize our kids. But turn to Christ now. If you're a child here this morning, trust in this Jesus Christ to save you. Trust in all the prophecies about his coming, his significance as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Has he taken away your sin? Our passage finishes in verses 50 to 51. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. Once again, folding back to the original Passover, folding back to the obedience of God's people and concluding here with the Exodus. God's people did what the Lord commanded them to do and God rescued them from bondage. Has God rescued you from enslavement to sin? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this passage we've had time to study and look at this morning. We thank you for what it teaches us. We thank you for all that is here and all the ways that it instructs us in the overarching storyline of the Bible and who Christ is and how he was foretold and what he does for sinners. Lord, we praise you that we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper as baptized believers, as those who have been circumcised in our hearts and that has been affirmed in the covenant community through baptism. We thank you, Lord God, for the opportunity we have this morning to celebrate this. And we ask that our hearts would be filled with joy, Lord, that we would, even in the midst of our sins, that we would take heart, that we would be courageous, that we would confess and repent and turn Lord, that we would just delight in the mercies of God toward us. That we would delight in the blood of the Lamb. Thank you for this time we've had together, Father. Would you continue to work mightily in our service? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.